Uh, good morning, CBC. How y'all doing? Good to see you guys. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I want to invite you up front to go ahead and pull out your Bibles and jump to the book of Titus. If you came this morning and you don't have a Bible, or maybe you left it at home, or you're just in need of a Bible, I'd invite you to throw up your hand, and one of our ushers would be more than glad to bring you a Bible. And these Bibles are our gift to you. They are yours to have and to keep. While you guys are looking to Titus, let me welcome our online community as well. So glad that you guys could join us and looking forward to what God has in store for us today. As you're turning in Titus chapter 1, let me recap where we started three weeks ago as we jumped into a brand new Timeless Truths series. The author is Paul. He's writing to a young pastor named Titus who is a pastor on the island of Crete. He writes from Macedonia on one of his missionary journeys in between his first imprisonment in Rome and his second imprisonment in Rome. He writes to a young man who has been found out to be a man of solid character, of great judgment. He is trustworthy. He's respectable. He's an individual that Paul has invested in as a mentor to a mentee. He sees himself as a father figure in the faith to Titus. He also writes this letter to Titus in between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, in between letters to the church in Ephesus that Timothy was leading. And there are a lot of comparisons and parallels between 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. They are addressing young pastors in communities that are new to the faith, that are dealing with struggles and need to appoint leaders and elders. He's writing to Titus specifically because uh, if you looked at just last week, we talked about there's two really primary reasons he wrote. Number one, he wanted to encourage him as a father in the faith to continue the work that they had begun together, that God had appointed and called them to. So he says, I want to continue to encourage you to do that, which we started. And he does it in a sense to encourage him as a, as a partner in the faith to say, Titus, you're not alone. Ministry can be one of the loneliest things in the world, and not just vocational ministry like me and our staff, but us in general who are doing the work of the Lord in ministry, it can be difficult and lonely at times. So we need to know that we're not alone, that we're in this battle together, and that we are called to life and ministry together. The second purpose that he outlines last week in, in, in the second part of First Timothy is that they are responsible, Titus is responsible then to appoint elders throughout the community because churches are popping up all over the island of Crete. So Titus is not only the pastor of the church, capital C, but he is responsible for giving leadership direction and spiritual oversight to the churches that are being established on the island of Crete. So he is responsible for appointing elders. The elder word literally means shepherd. And shepherd is where we get the word pastor from. So he's now appointing, educating, instructing, and encouraging pastors throughout the island of Crete. Crete, as a nation, has a reputation. In fact, their national identity was that they were a group of liars. They were Cretans. So to be called a Cretan means you're a liar. It's someone who embellishes. We identified early on that the, there are really two primary reasons that people tell a lie. The first reason is that they want to evade trouble for themselves or someone else. And the second reason that someone would lie or embellish is to puff themselves up, to make others believe about them something that isn't true because they are insecure in themselves and want others to believe something that, that isn't true about them so that they have a semblance of self-worth in that culture, in that community. Along with the lying that was taking place on Crete, there was false teaching, there were little g-god or deities, there were all kinds of problems and circumstances surrounding the trouble that was going on that was taking place throughout Crete. Titus was there to educate, to lead, to direct, and this was a community that had one foot in the church and the other foot in the ways of the world. 
We talked about in week one. The whole purpose of week one's message was grace before peace. Throughout scripture, we identified that peace always precedes grace, that grace always comes before peace. And the idea that we talked about then is that people search the world over desperately looking for peace. They look to find peace at the bottom of a bottle. They look to find peace through pornography. They look to find peace through one broken relationship to the next. They look to find peace through their work. They look to find peace through sports and activities. It can be as detrimental or as innocent as you want it to be, including people search the world over looking for religions to bring about peace, including churches. People will come to church this morning all over the continental U.S. of A in search of peace. But the only thing they'll get at the church is hopefully a safe refuge where people can encounter God. But until we accept the grace of God, and we identified grace or explained grace as God's riches at Christ's expense, until people accept and identify and make their own or adopt grace in their lives, they will never know true peace, that peace which surpasses all understanding. If you want to know peace, you've got to adopt grace. The second week, last week, we talked about GPS, Global Positioning System. How when you're driving and you put in the calculations of where you want to go, you take your directions from Siri or from whatever GPS or app you're using, and the app of the world gives you directions. But we talked about how when you're taking directions from the world, that is a complete juxtaposition from accepting direction from God's truth. So we changed GPS from global positioning system to gospel position through scripture. That we get our directions and we live our lives based on what we receive through the gospel position that we find in scripture. Today, I I just want to use a a, a little bit of an illustration to help us understand where we're headed today. So that said, I'd love to have you check this brief video out. I am not, this is going to depress some of you, I am not a sci-fi guy. I have never watched The Hobbit. I've never watched Lord of the Rings. I've never watched a Star Wars movie. I've never watched uh, Harry Potter. And it's not because I have a problem in, in and of itself. It's, well, I mean, I have lots of problems, but we don't have time today. It's not that I have a problem with those sci-fi movies. I just prefer movies based on reality, like Rocky 1, 2, 3, 4, and 6. Like, uh, like, like uh, I prefer Coach Carter. I prefer Remember the Titans. I prefer For Love of the Game. Movies that I have an affinity toward. So sci-fi is not something I've ever given a lot of weight to or merit. But I have a child my eight-year-old daughter, Ryan, who loves Marvel. That was a clip from Spider-Man 3. And so I've seen many of the Marvel movies. And her favorite part about that movie is just the the, kind of the, the juxtaposition between good and evil, but how in the end, good always wins over. That scene right there is a scene between Sandman, who has lost everything and he's trying to to, to protect his daughter through money, and Spider-Man, who jumps onto the scene and he says, as he jumps into the back of that armored vehicle under attack, he looks right at Sandman and he says, the jig's up, pal. Growing up, I had never heard that language. I'd never heard that, 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 that kind of that statement before. But as I became an adult, I, I began to hear it more often. The jig is up. And what it literally means, it started actually back in the 1800s in the Philadelphia newspaper where it was calling out or identifying truth versus uh, kind of pretentious uh, ideas. It was truth versus lie. The jig is up literally means that you've been found out. You've been had. There's no more faking it until you make it. There's no more lying. There's no more embellishing that you've been had. The truth is all out there. And that's exactly what Paul is going to tell Titus today. We're going to see that in the scriptures, that the jig is up. So in fact, that's the title of my sermon today. If you've got your Bibles out, your pen or pencil ready, your highlighter ready, and a piece of paper in front of you, this is a great time to take notes. The jig is up. Let's pray as we dive into the word. 
Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you so much for the word that we're about to receive. I pray that it may become active and alive in us all the more. Lord, ready us to encounter your truth. I pray that you would be glorified in this, Father, that your name would be made famous and that you would redeem this time unto yourself. And now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, let me, let me remind us of where we were last week by just recapping a couple of verses, starting in verse 8, which will lead us to verse 10, and that's where we're going to start today. Paul, now talking about the elders in the church, he gives 17 characteristics, five prohibitions, and 12 active exercises. He says, rather, an elder must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. So he says he must be hospitable. And then we talked about last week how Paul says, whatever is good, pure, lovely, holy, right, admirable, think on these things. He says he must live wisely and just. In other words, he must be an individual of sound uh, integrity, character, and making good decisions. He must live devout and disciplined life, being set apart or holy for God. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. Not based on our personal convictions or our own ideas, but all things that we bring about reproach is through the word of God. This is our GPS, our our gospel position through scripture. Today, we're going to see now a a change. We're going to look at five examples of a false teacher. So he's given seven characteristics or quality traits of an elder in the church. Now he's going to give five quality traits or characteristics of a false teacher, of an idolater, of, a, of, of, of someone that is a false prophet that is bringing about all kinds of havoc in the community and in the churches. Remember, this is a community that is brand new to the faith. They don't have a, a written copy, a physical copy of the word of God that they have. So what they have to rely on is the Holy Spirit to illuminate their minds and the word that is coming to them from the message that is being presented uh, first from the Old Testament, then also prophets and, and, and uh, the, the book of wisdom. Now through the active living continuation of Jesus Christ through the apostles. So they're hearing a lot of this for the first time. They're, they're, they're bunched up and mixed up about what's going on in the community. So verse 10, he gives us some warnings about what to watch out for. Five characteristics we're going to look at. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious people. Many in this community, as these churches are popping up throughout the island of Crete, denotes that there were a lot of people that were intentionally doing things for their own gain, their own benefit, and even deliberately leading people away from the truth of the gospel or the message of Jesus Christ for their own personal gain. One of the first of the five characteristics of a, of a false teacher is that they are rebellious. They are a rebellious person. To be rebellious by definition is to come against authority, to, to revoke what is true by those in authority over them. To be rebellious means to challenge status quo or what is correct or right for their own gain. Now, I want to I make a, a distinction between being rebellious and challenging truth. I am an individual by nature who has a hard time accepting things at face value. I challenge truth. I don't want to be just told to do something. Why? Because I said so. I won't even do that with my own children. They have permission to ask why it is that I'm asking them to do something because it's an opportunity for me to teach them and instruct them and encourage them and hold them accountable. So if my son says, why do I brush my teeth? What do you, why do I have to do that? I'll, just, I'll, I'll say because your, your breath is funky and you got all kinds of halitosis and gingivitis and gum disease and I'll show him pictures of people whose teeth have fallen out and are decayed and then he goes and brushes with two teeth, toothbrushes at the same time. Uh, he just wants, so I don't mind my kids challenging me and wanting to know why it is they're doing what they're doing. I will never say just because or just because I told you so. After I've already repeated myself, then I'll say, because I'm your dad. I'm a lot bigger than you. Do what I say. 
All right, I get that one. Sometimes I just gotta make it really clear. But it is okay to challenge status quo or to challenge why it is you're doing something. In fact, I would encourage you to challenge why we do what we do in the church. Under my leadership, you've probably heard me say this several times. One of our core values is that we do church on purpose, with a purpose, and for his purpose. We will never just go through the motions. I will never ask you to do something that I haven't done or I'm willing to do with you. We are not going to have programs just for the sake of doing programs. I'm not interested in being the most popular church in the community that is all things to all people. I'm interested in being unique to who God has called us to be, and that is to be a church that is fully devoted to Jesus Christ after we have an encounter as a community of hope where we encounter God. And you'll learn more about that in in our series at my church in September and October. So I'm not discouraging you from challenging status quo. I am warning you not to be rebellious in the sight of truth or the sight of faith or the sight of God's scripture. We've got to be careful of that. And that is a fine line at times. But make sure you know who you are, whose you are, and that you do all things that you do on purpose, with a purpose, and for his purpose. So the first characteristic then of a false teacher is that they're rebellious. They're rebellious people who engage in useless talk. Now there are two Two things that we need to talk about with useless talk. The first is what comes out of your mouth, and the second is your motivation. Useless talk. They were, and we're going to learn about this here in just a minute, lip service versus lifestyle. Useless talk are people who challenge status quo, or or specifically in the case of, of religion and faith, for the sake of puffing themselves up for building themselves up. They'll argue about anything and everything so that they can show you that they are superior in knowledge and superior in perspective. There are people who will literally take a a very simple concept of Scripture and they will build it up and and they'll, they'll, they'll extrapolate to the nth degree and you'll lose complete consciousness of what you even started talking about because they have such a desire to prove their merit and their self-worth with their words that it just becomes completely useless. Some of the greatest communicators of all time are individuals who can take a complex concept and distill it down to the, to, the, to the most common form and preach it in a way that is not only biblically accurate, but also applies application. We've talked about the kind of communicators that, that teach uh, all kinds of, that build up a bunch of head knowledge, but never present application, how we can apply the word of God to our lives. The reason that a lot of those preachers do that, is, in my own experience now, and what the word of God teaches, is because they want others to think more highly of themselves than they ought to. They think that you have to try to work to attain where they're at or some level or flex their spiritual muscle or show off their degrees or their, their depth of knowledge and understanding of the original languages and, and how they do all that. that. That's not beneficial for the body. What's beneficial for the body, we see in 1 Corinthians specifically, is when you speak, he says it's better to speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in tongues. Now, the reason he talks about that is about order of worship and the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost and all that. But the truth still remains that when we speak, We need to speak and meet people where they're at, never compromising the truth of God or dumbing it down, but intentionally looking to meet people where they're at. We'll talk about that here in just a second as well. The second part of this is in what we find in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, the Beatitudes. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Useless or senseless talk is making a commitment to do something that you don't follow through on. Now, there's all kinds of variables and reasons that things happen, but when we just make a bunch of excuses but we, 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 because we never had any intention of following through on what we said, that's useless talk. That's little more than lip service, not followed through with our lifestyle. So these false teachers then are going to corners in, cor- or in, excuse me, in Crete, and they're giving this message, this eloquent message with a lot of really big words, and they're getting paid to do it. 
They're also making commitments in the community that they're not following through on. They're just empty words, useless words. I want to encourage you to, number one, be mindful when someone is preaching and teaching the Word of God to investigate their lifestyle. Don't just take them at face value. Get into the Word of God. Discover what it says yourself. Challenge yourself by involving others to do life and ministry with you. And then look for the lifestyle. It doesn't matter how much you know if people don't know how much you care. We need to look to apply the Word of God in our lives. So that's the second characteristic he says to avoid those who use useless talk. The third is, these false teachers were deceiving others. Why would you deceive somebody? Well, deception is built around selfishness. Let me say that again. Deception, by nature, is built around selfishness. These are individuals who are doing what they were doing for personal gain, for personal benefit, for personal financial benefit. These were people who wanted to be reputable in their community in terms of their, their, what, what people thought of them. They didn't care at what cost. They were just willing to do whatever. Sacrifice relationships, sacrifice sound doctrine and sound teaching, sacrifice people over religion and false doctrine so that they then themselves would puff up instead of build up. You see, head knowledge puffs up, but an active lifestyle builds up. So we've got to be careful then about deceiving others or those who deceive us for their own personal gain, and they use the word of God in their deception. That's the third characteristic of a false teacher. Then he says, this is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. This is the fourth characteristic of an individual that we've got to be mindful of. This is what is known as the Judaizers. These are people who were deep in religion, but did not have an active relationship with Jesus Christ. These are the Pharisees and the religious leaders of communities that identified with the Mosaic law, the Levitical laws, the Davidic laws, the Davidic covenant, all of that. They knew the Old Testament. What they knew, they had to identify all 613 laws and regulations that were expected to be kept. These Judaizers were those who, who made sure that you honored and kept to the religious rituals and, and, and made sure that if you didn't, that you knew about it. They would go out into the street corners and publicly judge others because they didn't follow through on a law or because they did, but in, in the wrong way. They didn't honor the sacrifice the right way. These were people who were selling the sacrifices in the temple for personal gain. When you see that Jesus walks in the temple, throws over these tables, casts everybody out with a whip, and says, my father's house is a house of prayer. These are those people. These are the people that, that twist relationship with Jesus all for religion. And these are the people that say, look, until you do X, Y, or Z, or until you meet with such and such, or until you believe X, Y, and Z, you're not permitted to be in the church. You shouldn't be here. They're teaching all kinds of false doctrine. These are the people that are driving people from the church. Because anybody on the outside looking in looks at it and says, well, I'll never be like that. I'll never speak like that. I'll never act like that. I, that's just not in me. I don't know all your rules and regulations. And so they're literally intimidated to come into the church for fear of failure. They're intimidated to come in because of fear of judgment. They're, they're intimidated because they don't know all the ins and outs of our religion. Well, let me tell you right now, it is not about religion. I am not about religion. I could care less about religion. I am all about a right relationship with Jesus, which comes with adopting the grace and living out through peace in him. We demonstrate that through how we live our lives, not the judgment that we have in our hearts and that we superimpose on somebody when they come in. 
We look at them and say, well, I know them. They've got a, this kind of reputation in the community. Or that person's been divorced three times. Or I heard that person messes around with homosexuality. Oh, did you hear he lost his job? And did you see that she had an emotional affair? And we, 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 we make decisions predicated on, 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 on a reputation. And a lot of times, we don't know half the story, let alone the whole story. So people don't want to come in because they don't, they, they're getting judgment enough from the outside world. Why do they want to come to the place where we are supposed to be a refuge, a hospital for the sick, a, 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 you know, not, not, not a monument or a museum for those who think they have it all figured out. They don't want to come because they don't want to experience what they've already experienced on the outside world. They want to come to a community of hope where people can encounter God and be led to a devout relationship with Jesus Christ, fully devoted. As long as we are placing judgment and superimposing religiosity on people, we're keeping them out and... We're actively sinning. We're not called to judge anyone. We're we're specifically not called to judge the outside world, but not even one another. We're called to hold accountable those who wave the banner of Christ. And every one of you should have an active accountability partner or some of us partners. My personality and my speed, I need multiple accountability partners. I've got an elder board that holds me accountable. I've got a staff that holds me accountable. I've got three men that I allow to speak into my life every week as accountability partners to grow us up, to to build us up so that we can do the work of Christ based on a right relationship and not religion. Anybody who would say you have to do this and then this and then this before coming to church or encountering Jesus is nothing more than a false teacher. All right, enough on that. Then he says, it's specifically true to those who insist on circumcision for salvation. That is all about works, not grace. Verse 11 says, they must be silenced. That word in the Greek literally means to be muzzled, to be shut up, to have their lips sewn together so as not to speak. Whose responsibility is it to silence the false teachers? It is the responsibility of the elders of the church. This is Paul writing to Titus about those who are appointed as elders. And let me tell you something. As a pastor, one of my least favorite responsibilities is to speak the truth in love to you. It's not easy. Our staff jokes all the time that it's a part of just my nature because every week I'm calling out something else. I talked to one of our pastors in between the first and second service. I said, I said you know what? It is so hard preaching the truth, but I can't do, do it any other way. And he said, he said, truth comes with a price. I could sit here and I could tickle your ears with an inspirational message and try to motivate you to better living, to better wealth, to better health, to better care, and avoid the hard stuff. But we're about to get into some really hard stuff here at this church here in just a moment. We've got to be really, really, really careful to understand that our responsibility as believers isn't to make others feel cozy and comfortable. We are called to invite them in. We are called to love them where we're at. We are called to to demonstrate how much we love them by our lifestyle and not just our words. People, again, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. We are not called to superimpose judgment on people. We are called to actively pursue people with the love of Jesus and invite them into doing life and ministry with us. The more we do that as a church the more we actively look for opportunities to pursue relationships with others with the sole intention of demonstrating the love of Jesus Christ and inviting them into life and ministry together where we walk hand in hand, the sooner that this church will have to go to four services and five services and six services and we're going to have to start planting churches all over the place because we would be unstoppable. We've got to be mindful then, church. That's what he says. 
to silence them. Do you know what shepherds, which is what the word pastor means or overseer, elder in this language? Shepherds always walk around with a staff. There's several reasons for it. One of which is to guide the sheep when we go astray. Another is to hold on to the shepherd's staff for stability. But one of the biggest reasons that we have shepherd's staff, we see it throughout scripture, is to protect against and to ward off the predators. In other words, there are some times when people are acting like wolves, you just gotta take that, that shepherd's rod and smack them upside the head. I'm serious. Literally, smack them upside the head. And according to the word of God says, now this is modern vernacular, in love, tell them, shut up. What you're teaching is not of God. Superimposing religiosity on people is not how Jesus demonstrated his love and his sacrifice. The Bible says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But carry on to verse 17, it says, for God did not send his son to judge the world, but to save us, to meet us right where we're at, to love us through our junk, and to, to redeem us unto himself. And we are called to be Christians. That word Christian means Christ-like or little c Christians. That's how we're to live our lives. So if people are rattling off false teachings and spewing stuff from the Bible, the best way to re refute what they're saying is to know the Bible and then in love tell them, just be quiet. They don't be quiet, find a muzzle. That's what the word means. Why? He says, because of their language, because of their religiosity, because of their judgment, because of their false teaching, because of their love of money, they are leading whole families. They are turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching. Turning whole families away. We have a responsibility as a church to protect the flock. If you look to your right and if you look to your left, whether you know one another or not, you are responsible for one another in the faith which means you have a responsibility to protect against the deceivers, the liars. All right, here's the fifth characteristic. And why do they do it? They do it for money. False teachers do it for money, predicated on what it is, what's in it for them. There are, whole, there are whole television shows dedicated to these type of people. And I'm not gonna mention any names, but some of the most popular preachers in the world are false teachers who are preaching. And when I was in seminary, I took a class on false religions and I had to read a book about four inches long, or yeah, deep. It was called Kingdom of the Cults. It would disgust you if you ever knew how many religions or people in the world fleeced themselves with the name of Christ and call themselves Christians, but could not be any further from Christianity. They don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe the word of God is absolutely flawless, that it is inerrant, that it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They're teaching that if you, uh, the reason you're not healthy is because you're not giving enough. The reason that you're not um, making enough money is because you're not faithful enough. It, it's just absolutely absurd. And people sit there and eat this stuff up. The largest church in the country is full of false teaching. But it just feels so good to hear it. So you mean if I just give more? You're going to sprinkle a little bit of that holy water on a, on a shawl. You're going to send it to me. My life's going to be all better. And if my life's not all better, you're going to send me a letter saying, well, you must not have enough faith or you must not be given enough. You better give some more. Man, get out of here with that nonsense. False teachers are literally leading the whole families away from the truth of God. Those are the five characteristics of a false teacher. Now, verse 12, he goes on and he says, even one of their own men, even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, he said about them, now this was about 500 B.C. So this is the reputation of their own prophet, their own false teacher. Their own idolater says this about them. 
The people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. This is from their own camp, from their own tent even. This is someone who is a false teacher, a false prophet among them from 500 BC that came to Crete from the island of Gnosis, and, 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 and he presents this truth to them. Now, I want to talk about something really unique for a minute. I've been challenged, I've seen multiple pastors challenged on the idea that we ever use any cultural relevance in the church. Can I tell you why that's just absolutely wrong? Throughout Scripture, from Genesis until now, God has appointed prophets to use circumstances of the day to bring about his whole truth through contextual and cultural relevance. Throughout Scripture, we see Moses spoke in parallels and parables to make the Word of God understandable and applicable to people's lives. Throughout Scripture, we see King David use parallels and parables, circumstances of the culture and context at that time to make the Word of God understandable and applicable. Throughout Scripture, more than half of what Jesus taught was in modern-day examples. Farmers, prophets, lawyers, tax collectors, reaping the harvest, all of those modern-day examples to draw parallels and parables from culture and context so that we can understand and apply the Word of God. Throughout Scripture, in the epistles, and even Jesus, the disciples come to Jesus and say, well, Lord, 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 there's a whole group of false teachers that are preaching in your name, but they don't know you. And what does Jesus say? Leave them alone. Let them teach, because truth of God is never relative. It's not based on circumstances. It's not based on emotions. And honestly, even Satan himself quoted Scripture. So because Satan quoted it, does it make it any less authentic and authoritative? Because false teachers preach and teach and they use the Word of God, does that make the Word of God any less authoritative? It doesn't. Not only that, but then you go into the epistles. And in the epistles, they use prophets, they use false prophets, they use religious teachers, they use uh, lawyers, <laughs> they, they go, it goes on, politicians. Paul specifically quotes, right here, he doesn't quote Jesus, he doesn't quote an Old Testament prophet. In the word of God, he uses a common context and culture to say, even your own false prophet says about Crete that you are liars and that you are gluttons and that you, you, you've got it all wrong. So what makes us think then that all of a sudden when Jesus came, lived among us, died, buried, raised three days later, and ascended to heaven, that all of a sudden we could no longer use the practices of Jesus, the practice of God, the practices of the disciples and the apostles, the practices of the prophets, through modern day examples to teach in a way that is applicable and relevant. I just don't understand that. I, I don't get that. God's truth, his word is not relative. It's relevant. And we have a responsibility. If I can use an analogy like Spider-Man 3 to help understand that the jig is up, that you've been found out, that, that, that why wouldn't we? Some of you are going to walk out of here today never having heard me preach before. And you may not remember a single thing I said, but you will remember Spider-Man 3 because you love it. And you say, okay, the jig is up. All right. And then they'll draw you right back to the message. The message will hopefully penetrate your heart, which will change your lives. Everything we do here is on purpose. So let's just be careful before we start judging about what contextual and uh, cultural relevance looks like and what it means. All right. He said then, of, of these own, they say that the Cretans are liars, cruel animals, and lady guttons. Then Paul does it again. He's done it multiple times before. And then he says, this is true. Why does he say this is true? Because who is he talking to? 
He's talking to a bunch of Cretans. What are Cretans? What's their national identity? That they are a bunch of liars and embellishers. So now, at least for the third time, we see Paul say, what God's word is, is true. He's, he's making a, a clear divide between the two. This is true. So here's what he says. So reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. In Proverbs, we learn that the word of God is useful for life, for living, for reprimanding, for admonishing, for building up. We see that the word of God is active and alive and that it serves a tremendous purpose. What we see here, the analogy given right now, is that of a father to a child. I have six children. God has blessed me with five daughters and one son. I have an incredible responsibility to be their parent and not their friend. They have a lot of people in the community that they can be friends with. My responsibility, I, if, if you like me all the time, I'm not doing my job. If my kids like me all the time, I'm not doing my job. None of us likes to be admonished. None of us likes to be called out and convicted. We all just want to hear the word and think that we're doing it all right. But there are times when my kids aren't getting it right, and I have to call them out. Not because I like to, not because I want to, but because I have to. I have a responsibility to correct my children and to raise them up in the ways of the Lord and to love them through their brokenness. We as a church have a responsibility to correct our, our children, to love our children, and to raise you up in the Lord. I said it just a minute ago, I'll say it again. One of the pastors on staff in between services, I said, man, I love preaching, but sometimes these hard truths are very difficult. And that pastor said, truth always comes with a price. Don't worry about being friends with everybody. Pray for their souls. Meet them where they're at. Teach them the truth of God by how you live your lives and invite them to do life and ministry with you. And leave the rest up to God. Let the Holy Spirit do the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to use the word of God. This, guys is our foundation. This is our forever truth, the inerrant, perfect, flawless word of God. This is where we learn true theology, true doctrine, how we can become orthodox in what we believe and how we can compare truth from a lie and from a false teacher to an appointed leader of God's church. Make sure you know the word of God. You're in the word of God. Do you know right now we have 14 life groups in our church, small groups. By the end of September, October, we are going to add 12 more life groups. And that's just the beginning. Because I believe that you all are called to be, we are all called to be in a, in a, in a smaller community where we can, as iron sharpens iron, we can sharpen one another. Where we can learn from those who are, have gone before us and have more knowledge and understanding of the truth of God. I encourage you, implore you, if you're not in a life group, be praying about and thinking about why and when you're going to get started. So he said, this is true, so reprimand them sternly to make them strong in their faith. Verse 14, they must stop listening to Jewish myths and commands of people who have turned away from the truth. If ever I've come under fire for anything I've ever taught, it is the idea that you can lose your salvation. And I'm making a big deal out of this because it's still out there. So I just want to tell you one more time. I do not believe that you can lose your salvation. You you can't lose it. What the Word of God teaches is that you could have experienced the Word of God. You could have experienced regeneration. You could have experienced God's truth. You could have, uh, like, like in Acts chapter 9, when Paul has an incredible encounter with Jesus, you could have radically been changed and transformed. But that word, when they say turn away, that word in the Greek language is apostropho. 
An apostropho literally means apostasy. And what apostasy means is that you have encountered, you have active knowledge, you have even lived under, but have chosen to regard, disregard and to reject and to completely turn away from. If the word of God says that, how can I teach anything less? I don't think you can lose your salvation. Romans 3.23 uh, you know, says we're all sinning and falling short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that he loved us and made a way for us. But in Romans 8, he says nothing can separate us from the word of God. I don't disagree with that. Nothing can separate us from the word of God. But it doesn't say you can't give it back. You see more examples throughout scripture of people who have known the truth and walked away. We have to preach the hard truths, even though it's difficult, even though people don't want to hear that. Who wants to? You can't lose it, but you can surely turn away from it. I just want to remind us again that we've got to be intentional about how we live. This doesn't, this doesn't mean that you have to worry every single moment of every single day that if you do something bad enough or enough times that you're going you're gonna to lose your relationship with Jesus. That's a false lie. That, that, that right there is predicated on our own, our own inadequacies, our own experiences. That's not how God works. There's no sin too great that if you committed a sin and, and, and unconfessed sin and you die, that you're damned to hell. You don't need to come to the altar every single Sunday and uh, resurrender your soul. You just need to live out your salvation and when you mess up, apologize. But instead of lip service, we've got to make it a lifestyle. Does that make sense? I sat down so I could calm down. <laughs> All right. Let's keep going, guys. Verse uh, 15. Everything... If I could have you circle that, that is really important. Everything is pure, undefiled, righteous to those whose hearts are pure. But nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and their consciences are corrupted. Based on at least two occasions in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks specifically about food offered to sacrifices as an idol as an idol worship and believers eating that food where Paul says all things are permissible but not all things are beneficial and then you can jump to Matthew where Jesus teaches that what goes in your mouth that is defiled comes out as waste but that if you are pure in heart that all things are pure I want to refute something right now when the word of God says that all things are pure for those who are pure it doesn't mean that we can go live recklessly however we want. We still have a responsibility and an obligation to be above reproach, to honor Jesus with how we live our lives. At the same time, and what he's talking about here is there were two systems of belief in the church in Corinth. There was a whole subsect of Christianity that said that anything offered to idols, you could not take part in, whether it was music or it was the way you dress, or in this case, specifically food. If you ever ate food sacrificed to idols, you were sinning and you were leading others to sin. The second part of that, the other group of Christians had a strong belief. They said, well, if there's only one true God, then how can eating food offered or sacrificed to a false idol con condemn me? And what it was is that the food that had been sacrificed to all false idols in the market was substantially discounted you could get the same quality of meat at a much lesser price. And so there was these Christians who were just snatching up this meat hand over fist because it was cheap in quality, and they didn't care because it wasn't offered to the one true God. The issue then becomes a matter of the heart, of motivation and speculation, not intentions and lifestyle. 
Just because we are permitted to do those things doesn't mean we should, but at the same time, lean in and listen in. Don't allow other Christians or other individuals to superimpose extra-biblical ideologies on you and make you feel guilty that you're not convicted about something. And I'm going to use alcohol as an example. I said it last week. I'll say it again. I don't drink. And not because I, don't think, I think that drinking is a sin in and of itself. It's not. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he, he explains that drinking is actually good for the body. But he warns throughout Scripture not to be given to drunkenness because it changes your reputation, your attitude, your mindset, everything about it. The reason I choose not to drink is twofold. One, I know that I'm an extreme personality. I'm, I'm, I have a propensity toward addiction. In my life, I have, a, I have a pendulum that swings one way or the other. The only time I'm ever level is for when I'm swinging, right when I'm in the center. They'll catch me at like 12 o'clock twice a day. That's about it. Otherwise, I'm extreme. I come from a long, long five, six, seven generations of alcoholics, of, of addictive behaviors that were detrimental and destructive. So I choose not to indulge in that stuff because I do have an addictive personality and because I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to dishonor God. So for me, the Holy Spirit convicts me that I should not drink. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit convicts you. You may have a glass or two of diesel fuel and enjoy it. I choose not to. But if you're not being given to drunkenness and you're not doing it in a way that dishonors God or leads others to sin, you're fine, which is the second reason. I want to be above reproach. I don't want to be in the community having a beer and, and, and you walk by and you see the, 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 the pastor is, is drinking. This just happened between my wife and I. It was so innocent. As long as, as, long as we've been married, <clears throat> I tend to be a little competitive. And my wife, who says she's not, she tends to falsify some truth sometimes like that. <laughs> we were leaving softball. We played softball on Friday night. And as we were leaving... We were talking about going to the grocery store to get food. And all of a sudden, one of my kids says, go faster. And my wife in her minivan steps on it, and it's just roaring. And I'm like, what are you doing, woman? Our church softball team is right there watching you speed on the wrong side of the road to beat me. And they were all applauding. Woo! Get him. Beat him. And we got to the parking lot of the grocery store. I said, honey. You didn't win. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. I didn't race you because I don't want people to think they were lunatics from the city. They already do. And she had this look, like this sheepish look on her face. She said, oh. I said, honey, they were, wow, we just got to be careful of that stuff. I don't think my wife out and out sinned. And if you weren't looking, I would have destroyed her. That's the truth. But in that moment, I didn't want people to say, well, look at the pastor. He's just revving his engine and beating his wife and going through Blair like crazy. He's up on Dana. He's running through the streets. He's driving his truck up on the grass. Why is he doing that? Because he can. Like, I don't know. I just, I want to be above reproach. We've got to be careful then how we live our lives. That we don't superimpose our own convictions, extra biblical convictions, on others. Because that will drive them from the church. What we should do is introduce them to the love of Jesus Christ and teach them what the word of God says about what is good, holy, right, lovely, admirable, and permissible. Encouraged. All right. So. It says, everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt. Nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and their consciences are corrupted. What that means is even the best things, even the best things of God become unpure when done out of context and out of the reverence of God. You remove God from the equation and you're nothing more than just a good citizen. You put God into the equation and you are honoring God in your actions. Then he wraps up verse 16. Such people claim that they know God, 
but they deny him by the way they live their life. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. You know, I want to tell you, I've often, uh, multiple times I've actually told our staff this, I've told our elders this, I've said it in front of you. I am far from where God needs me to be in terms of my knowledge, my understanding. I'm open to anything that comes straight from the word of God in terms of conversation. And I will tell you on record, my theology changed this week. God, through his word, spoke directly to my heart. I've always thought that we, uh, we can't truly know if someone's a Christian or not. I've always said that it's not our responsibility to judge anybody else or to superimpose judgment. In fact, that's true of scripture. We're not called to judge anybody, especially non-Christians. What are we judging them against? Something they don't believe in that they haven't adopted? Christians, we're not even called to, com- uh, to judge other Christians. That's reserved for God. We are called to hold accountable and to admonish those who claim the name of Christ and are living in an adverse way and to do it in love. But I was wrong about whether or not we could really truly tell if somebody's a Christian. What Paul tells Titus here is that there are people in Crete claiming to be Christians. Such people claim they know God. Stop. This is lip service. And now we're going to learn about a lifestyle. But they deny him. To deny is a a verb. It's a choice. It's It's pushing it away. It's knowing the truth and keeping it separate, removing it from your life. They deny him being God by the way they what? Live. By the way, they live their lives. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. Three different times in in 1 John, we learn about those who know Jesus and who don't, and it's not by their words, but by their actions. We do have a means or or, or a gauge or a barometer to to test whether or not somebody's a believer. And it's by how they live their lives. Not to judge, but to know whether what they're living is true or not. God's not interested in lip service. He's interested in a lifestyle. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that is predicated on the fact that you're living your life in such a way to honor God. That is true of each one of us individually. That's true of us as a community. And that is true of us as a church. I'm going to get real with you for for, for just a second. Not that I'm ever not real. I got friends in the front row going, Throughout my ministry, I have seen, never been a part of, but I've seen church splits. And I've seen people leave churches over an unbelievable false doctrine. People misrepresent in Acts the story of Paul and Barnabas, where they had such a sharp disagreement that they had to part ways. And so they argue that the church... Split happened because we had a sharp disagreement, but God's going to... I've heard people in the last eight months, and it breaks my heart. It makes me angry. I've heard, and I finally had to address it with someone recently. They said, well, if you don't know about our church's history, in the last 47 years, this church has been a part of three church splits. Three. One just a year ago. And this isn't about our church or any other church in the community. You need to hear me say that. I pray for every church and every pastor in our community with a sincere heart. Because I want to see the church advance. I want to see the kingdom of God come this side of heaven. And I want to see his name made famous through the work of the ministry. But here's what bugs me. I hear people say all the time, well, look how God has, God, here's what I heard. God caused the church split to happen. Because look at how he's using both churches in the community. That is a lie. Straight from the pits of hell. 
And when they, when they quote that Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement that they had to go their different ways, church, they didn't split the church. They didn't divide the church. They agreed on the majors. They kept the majors the majors. They taught sound doctrine, sound theology. They still had common circles and common interests. They came to a place where they were arguing over an individual in ministry and where they should go and how they should pursue ministry. They, they had a disagreement that was so sharp that they continued in ministry through the local churches, but they had to go about it differently. They didn't divide the church. They still were under the same banner of Christianity, of Jesus Christ, loving, living, and moving through, and, and through him and, and, and preaching that same gospel. They didn't go and divide the church, getting some people to go on this side and some people to go on that side. You never see a church split in the Bible. It does not exist. So stop making excuses and justifying what Satan meant for death and destruction. And what I told these individuals is, look, their church split in the Bible never happens. God does not cause his bride to split. In fact, he teaches against it. But here's what I will tell you. I praise God that among the carnality and the flesh of man, that he can redeem all things unto himself and use it for his good and his glory. That's the truth. You may not want to hear that online. You may not want to hear it here. There may be people who are upset by what I just taught. But what I would ask you is, grab your Bible and show me otherwise. This is not my opinion. I deal with people who are devastating and hurting every day throughout this community at this church and the other churches who have been a part of a church split. And all I can think, all I can come up with, all I can rationalize is that it had nothing to do with the Word of God but politics, power, and personal preferences. You take your politics, you take your power, you take your personal preferences, you bow your heart and bend your knee to Jesus, you confess him, and you ask him to redeem your heart and your soul, and you confess it, and then you go apologize and you make amends. That's your responsibility, church. I'm not worried about the other churches. Your responsibility right now is to forgive, to create healthy boundaries, and to pursue righteousness through how you live your life through Jesus. Stop talking about the other churches. Stop comparing what God's doing here with the other churches. Be grateful that God redeems brokenness unto himself and that he uses all things for his good and his glory. Amen. And live it up and live it out to the fullest. If you want to talk to me about what I just said, I've got an open door, and I'm willing to meet with you right where you're at and walk you through it because I love you, because I love this community, because I love the churches in this community, and I want nothing more than to see his kingdom come, this side of heaven. You are not, uh, you are not absent from this. You have an active presence and a responsibility. So how do you know somebody really loves Jesus? It's not through lip service. It's through an active lifestyle. The Bible says you'll know you're a Christian by your love. The Bible also says that you'll have fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and a pastor who preaches really fast. (laughs) If I could give every one of you a hug, I would do it right now. I want nothing more for you as an individual and for us as a church to move away from lip service and into an active lifestyle. We're not responsible for anybody else in our community. We're not responsible for whatever happened. What we are responsible for is how we live out our faith, our righteousness in a way that is holy and set apart for his good works. Would you live it up this week? Would you live it out this week? I love you. I'm praying for you. I believe in you. And I absolutely am convicted that the best days of our church are in front of us. So let's go live it up. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that we would be a community that moves away from lip service and actively pursues a lifestyle that demonstrates your faithfulness. God, draw us unto yourself. 
meet us where we're at. But in desperation, Father, don't leave us there. As we confess, as, as, as we repent, Father, draw us unto yourself as we lift up your name. Draw all of us unto you. Prepare us, ready us, instruct us, teach us, move in us, love us, redeem us, regenerate us, and send us to do the work that you've called us to do and protect your bride, Jesus, not our church, but the church. And may we be a church ever mindful and incredibly intentional to love you and to serve others, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.